Well, thank you so much, uh, Taylor, Bob, missions team, and church family. This is an extremely special place for us, my family. Uh, right now, it's just Judson and my wife, Megan, in the room, but our kids are over in the nursery area, and we are so happy to be back here. Uh, we were back uh, this past winter for Caroline Wells' wedding, so that was kind of cool just being back in this building, but uh, to be here for worship, this is uh, rare for us. Atlanta has been largely shut down. Most churches are not worshiping like this yet. And so I think this is our third time worshiping since March corporately, so this is extremely special for us. But uh, actually, Taylor, a strange connection me and Taylor have is through his wife, Ashley. We actually went to high school together. She was a year older than me. And we were in the same church. We went to youth group and everything together. So that's pretty cool as well. But we're excited to be back here. This is an extremely special place. We have many memories here. Our uh, first child, Judson, was born here in Dothan over at Flowers. Uh, We lived, uh, before we lived at Chapelwood for a year, we lived in the McMullins uh, Hospitable Barn, we'll call it. It's not a barn. It's awesome. But they were gracious to open up the barn to us, and we lived there for a little bit. So... A lot of firsts for us as a family here. And uh, also one uh, memory I was recently reminded of, thanks to Doug Mann. Um, I, uh, the f- well, we'll just put it this way. I, I had four interns my, my last summer here while I was student pastor. And, uh, and we served here just under two years. It was too quick. And the four interns that I had, Ethan Brooks, you know him as Chanch, uh, Emily O'Mary, Rebecca Ramsey, and Nathan Nowell were our four interns, and we, it was basically slave labor. We were paying them nothing. <clears throat> but they were serving the Lord, so they were getting paid full. Uh, so we were doing a big renovation up on the youth floor, and we had taken out the tile and, like, the floor, the seat. It was, it was, it was a big project, and I don't know what all's to code, but it, I'm sure it's been changed since then, so that's good. But we are getting ready to throw down kind of the final layer and the flooring, we're going to stain it, and we get this acid-based concrete stain. And if you've ever worked with that, you know the fumes are outrageous. We, me, these four college students were rolling down this concrete stain, no ventilation, no windows open. And about 30 to 45 minutes in, uh, Doug Mann walks in on a scene of us just realizing we can't stop laughing. The only time in my life that I've been high was up on the youth floor. (laughs) Me and four college students. I'm sorry. Anyways, that's youth pastor stuff right there. Anyways, this is a picture of our family when we were here. Oh, the foolishness right there on the right. Anyways, uh, our family's grown a little bit now. It's uh, Judson on the right, Audrey is three, Judson's five, Audrey's three, and then Owen on the left is gonna be two here in a couple weeks in December. And so uh, that is our family now. And we now live in Atlanta. We recently transitioned. We've been in Atlanta's Upper West Side for almost four months. We transitioned from a church called Westwood Baptist where we had the same position here at Westwood. I was a student pastor there for four and a half years. And just to give you a glimpse into our journey that led us from here to planting a church in Atlanta alongside the Lee family. Uh, We were in student ministry and about two years ago, the Lord began to press upon my heart 
uh, a verse that I was praying every day for our students to be sent into the harvest. You're familiar, Luke 10, 2. And so every day at 10 a.m., I was praying for our students to be sent into the harvest fields of their schools to live on mission. We begin changing strategically our student ministry to reflect a more equipped ministry that's going into the harvest, not just inviting friends to big events. That's good, but we want them to be equipped with the gospel to be able to go with the gospel. So as all those things were going on, God was shifting in my heart a calling and and me and Megan began to pray about what that might be. In April of 2019, we attended a Send Network Preview, which is our denomination's North American Mission Board arm. They hold a Send Network Preview Uh, twice a year. And the SIN Network is simply the church planting effort behind the North American Mission Board. They have identified 32 cities across the US and North America, really into Canada and even Mexico as focus areas where they wanna plant churches and a lot of them. And so one of those cities is Phoenix. We went out to Phoenix and spent a weekend learning about what planting is, the competencies required and what, what it would look like to plant a church. And we came away knowing that God was calling us to plant And we thought that it was in Phoenix. Phoenix is a very underreached city. And so we began the process of being pre-assessed, basically just are you uh, able and willing and uh, do we feel that you have the competencies required to plant? And we finished that up and we were getting ready to go to Las Vegas to do some contextualization in a church called Hope Church for a year before we shipped to Phoenix to begin planting a church. And the Lord just closed that door. It became very obvious. So meanwhile, me and Dustin Lee, uh, Dustin Lee was the GM for Eagle Eye Outfitters for about nine years. We became close while we were in Dothan. Uh, We'd go eat wings every Friday and hang out. We just shared a lot in common and talked to ministry. He's also bivocationally the youth pastor at Mount Gilead for a number of years. He's actually preaching there this morning too. It just kind of worked out that way. But we began talking and discussing what church planning was like, and we realized, man, we are really like, man, let's do this together. But I'm not going to Atlanta. I found out Dustin was going to Atlanta. I'm like, that's, that's like number 32 on the list, man. We're not going to Atlanta. That's the Bible Belt. Our burden was born out of underserved, underchurched areas. We're going west. We're going somewhere that's really, really lost. Kind of had a nose up to Atlanta. And so when the door closed on Phoenix, we began to pray about Atlanta, at least. We went to visit. We began doing what's what's called neighborhood mapping, just basically finding the spiritual temperature, what the church culture is like, how many churches there are per people in our target area of the upper west side of Atlanta. And we realized just how wrong we were and how lost Atlanta really was, especially inside the perimeter. Just to give you an idea of what we mean when we talk about inside the perimeter, if we could show the map, that ITP, OTP map. Uh, Ross Clark Circle is our perimeter here. Uh, The perimeter in Atlanta is that I-285 circle you're probably familiar with because it's a traffic nightmare. And uh, it circles Atlanta and everything inside the 285 is called ITP, inside the perimeter, and everything outside is outside the perimeter. Our target area, if we could show the map of the target area, is in the upper west side And it's hard to see just the interstate boundaries and everything, but our home is right in the heart of that target area. And the target area in the right right corner of that triangle is about where Georgia Tech's campus is, if you're familiar with that area, in the West Midtown. And then the top part of that triangle is an area of Vinings, top part of Smyrna. The Braves baseball park is up in that top corner of the the triangle. And then on the bottom left side is where the Lees live in in a town called Mableton. 
And so that whole area has, it makes up where we are looking to make disciples and, and Lord willing plant a church. Our house is right in the middle in a little neighborhood called Vinings on the Chattahoochee. We live in a neighborhood that has about 1,029 people within 1,000 feet of our door. It's a very dense population. Atlanta is that way. In fact, Atlanta is about 750,000 people inside the perimeter. Uh, if you include the metro population, uh, it's about 6.1 million people, and they project it to grow to about 7.2 in five years. So it's a fast-growing city. Uh, it, it, it might bring up a lot of thoughts. I don't know, maybe just traffic. Uh, the big bad city in the south. Uh, you might think since it's election season, it's a blue city. Right, there's all kinds of ideas that we have about Atlanta. But one thing that we do know about Atlanta is it is very underreached. In our target area, there's about one evangelical church for every roughly 14,000 people. So just to put in perspective, uh, Dothan did a little math, uh, at least according to 2015, uh, there was roughly one church, evangelical church for every 650 people. So just kind of see just the difference in the amount of churches in an area like Dothan. Thank God for churches that are doing work, ministries that are doing work, still lots of needs, but the needs are huge in cities like Atlanta and urban areas, which is why we're going. So God confirmed after this visit that we were going to Atlanta and we decided to join with the Lees and we were planting a church in the Upper West Side. So what I, what I really want to do is also help you understand why church planting matters. So the pandemic is going to spread things up. Uh, some of the, the top Pew Research, Barna Research is coming back saying that uh, there's already churches closing. Uh, it's expediating the, the process of dying churches. Uh, in fact, Kinnaman, uh, David Kinnaman of Barna said that about, one, about 20% of churches are gonna close earlier than ever expected as a result of the pandemic. Uh, if we go to the next slide, there is a big, the, the big reason for church planning, however, is comes from a Tim Keller study. He's a pastor, was a pastor up in New York City. And they found that 60 to 80% most of church members in a church plant, a brand new startup, come from new converts. People who've heard the gospel of Christ, responded, been baptized into a church family. Whereas in an established church of 10 to 15 years old, 80%, roughly 80 to 90% of new members come from other congregations, whether that means they're new to an area or dissatisfied at another congregation, move to a new congregation. That's a big difference. Doesn't mean either one is bad, but it means one is more effective technically in reaching lost people with the gospel of Christ. Uh, <coughs> churches essentially that are planted, according to Peter Wagner, are the single most effective evangelistic strategy under heaven. It is extremely effective, which is what brought us and drew us into the planting strategy. It's also biblical, and we're gonna see that right now. In fact, I wanna read with you chapter 16 of Acts. So if you have a Bible follow along, we do have it on the screen. I don't know, it might be small, but Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to look at this morning to see just the model of planting and the strategy that Paul had that really just modeled after Jesus. So chapter 16, we're gonna start in verse 11. Paul has just received 
uh, a vision from, uh, he had a dream, a man in Macedonia that called him saying, we need help. He had just been told, don't go to Asia by the Holy Spirit. He felt like it was not time. And so he continues on and is waiting for what to do. And while he's waiting, they set sail for Troas because they've been called into Macedonia. So here we go, verse 11, chapter 16 of the book of Acts. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. You can see strategy already from Paul. Where is he going in Macedonia? Not just any city, but a leading city because there's where influence is. We can reach people there. We can reach the whole area. We remained in this city some days, verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed it was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. That means she was a business owner. She was of means, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her whole household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged us, judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. Having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, Paul, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the, the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, the jailer put them into the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in the house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. And he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he, had been, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let these men go. We're gonna skip down to verse 40. So they went out of the prison, visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Father God, we need you to, un, to help us understand. We need, 
like Lydia, our heart's eyes open to this text. So speak to us so that we can understand what planting is and what the Great Commission is and what you're calling us to do with it. And I'll just pray in Jesus' name, amen. And I'm reminded when we come to Dothan, some of our best friends are David and Lindsay Holloman. They used to be members here. And the Hollomans, uh, David is a farmer and it's harvest season. So he's been busting his tail, picking peanuts and cotton. And so farming, one thing that I'm struck by, we were in one of his fields yesterday, uh, is, is truly a helpless state that you can get in. I would, I would have to assume because there's so much that you do. You work your tail off and there's so much you can do. You can, you can till, you can plow, you can plant. But at the end of the day, you wait and you pray that a hurricane or a dry season or some kind of weather element does not ruin the season for you. In a lot of ways, it's helpless. You're dependent upon elements completely outside of yourself for the growth of a crop, which I don't think is any wonder why we see so many kingdom comparisons to farming throughout the New Testament by Paul and Jesus. Mark 4, 26 to 29 illustrates this beautifully. It's one of the passages that God used to call our family into planting. You see a farmer going into a field. He enters a field and what does he do? He's been given seed and he begins to scatter seed into the field. He goes to sleep, he wakes up day after day. He does not know how, but the crop begins to sprout. When the grain comes full, he takes a sickle and he begins to gather the harvest. And it's this picture of planting, discipling. Romans 1.16 reminds us that just like the farmer had ultimately no control over the growth of that crop. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so what I want us to see, namely in this text this morning, is that the gospel powers a disciple-making church, which I know is the heart of First Baptist Dothan. I know is the heart of hopefully every evangelical church. It's the heart of our church that we're seeking to plant. We want to be a multiplying discipleship culture that sees other churches planted. But look at the process in which the church of Philippi was planted. There's some simple inductive questions. Some simple Bible study questions can tell us a lot about this text. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about man? Those are two really easy questions. If you have kids and you're trying to teach them how to study the Bible, this is simple questions you can teach them to ask a, a text and to understand what God is saying through his Bible. What do we learn about God? What do we learn about man? What do we learn about man? We see Paul's obedience on full display. In verse 13 and 31, Paul, first of all, obediently obeys the, God's call to go to Macedonia, first of all. He enters a field, and with the gospel, what does he do? He shares it. He sees women at a prayer meeting. He shares the gospel, teaches them. He, he seizes the opportunity after an earthquake. I mean, it's laid up on a platter for him. The jailers say, hey, what do I need to be saved? What do I need to do to be saved? Like, anybody ever wanted that to happen in a, in a conversation? People tell you to share the gospel. You're like, oh, if somebody would just ask me. Well, Paul got that. I guess he was just really prayerful, right? This jailer, what do I need to do to be saved? And what does Paul, he's a simple gospel presentation. Believe unto the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe, not in your works, not in something that you have within Believe in something outside of yourself. 
If you're drowning in an ocean, you can't save yourself. You need something outside of yourself to come and rescue you. We need the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving power, the life that we could never live, the perfect righteousness that we could not earn and that we have stained through our own sin laid upon a sinless savior on a cross and him absorbing the punishment from his own father so that if we would believe in that truth that my sins really were placed on Jesus that we could have his righteousness placed upon us 2 Corinthians 5:21 and when we believe that truth we will be saved God's promise the gospel is shared but you also see the Lord Jesus Christ, right? It's, it's submission. It's not just belief. It's turning from sin. My ways are no longer on my thrones, on the heart, on my heart's throne. I don't want my ways anymore. I don't want my idols. I don't want myself here. I submit to King Jesus and His Lordship, and I'll be saved. So Paul obediently shares the gospel. Verse 40, Paul is released from prison and immediately what does he do? He begins to encourage and teach the church that is being born. And apparently there's brothers that have joined Lydia. We don't know if it's her household. I'm sure she's sharing the gospel in some capacity, but apparently there are brothers already in this church that are beginning to multiply. And so Paul returns to teach them and exhort them Verse 15 and 33, Paul obediently baptizes these new believers. This is the great commission. Do you, do you catch that? Jan, when she prayed, was praying the great commission. Go therefore, all authority's been given because I'm giving you my spirit. Go therefore, make disciples, share the gospel, baptize them and teach them to obey. This is exactly what Paul's doing. All he's doing, it's not his process, it's Jesus's process. And so we see how obedient men and women to the Great Commission power disciple-making. God is faithful to build when we are faithful to obey. What about our question, what did we learn about God? Well, it isn't Paul's words that open Lydia's heart to understand and believe the gospel. It's not persuasive inflection of voice. It isn't Paul's words that make a demon come out of the slave girl. It isn't Paul and Silas's beautiful voices that shake an earthquake and break the chains of prisoners. It's the sovereign God who opens the eyes of Lydia's heart. How comforting is that, by the way? That it doesn't depend on how awesome of a gospel presenter you are. Certainly, I don't wanna be an obstacle, but at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with my persuasiveness. It's God who opens the heart's of blind men and women. It's the Lord Jesus who draws the demon out of the slave girl and sets her free from captivity spiritually and physically. It's the God of creation that commands the earth into existence and causes rocks to rumble beneath the surface in such a way that chains are broken and prisoners set free. It's the all-powerful God who builds his church. It's his church. It's not Taylor. It's not me. I can't build a church in Atlanta. Taylor can't build a church here in Dothan. We can't do anything to build a church. God builds his church. It's the all-powerful God that we pray to for him to send the growth. Look at verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus tells Peter, 
your rock, on this rock, I will build my church. I'll build it. You be a vessel, I'll build through you. First Corinthians 3, 6 and 7, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Verse seven, so neither he who plants, I love this, it's so humbling, nor he who waters is anything, you're nothing, but only God who gives the growth. I, I, it, it almost, it echoes John's cries in the wilderness whenever his, when, when disciples and others and Pharisees come out to see him and ask, who are you? We gotta give an answer. And what does John the Baptist respond with? I'm just a voice. I'm not the Lamb of God. Look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's all we are. We're just voices. We're just instruments in the Redeemer's hands. And when we're obedient, God gives growth. The last thing that Atlanta needs is another church that has a strategy built around being bigger and better, cooler. There's plenty of that. Honestly, I pray that if one thing the pandemic has done, hopefully it displays the madness in being the bigger and better church around the block. In the name of usually reaching lost people, but often what ends up happening is just attracting disenchanted congregants across town. America might be, by the way, the only church culture that leans heavily on cool. <laughs> like, can you imagine going to China, right? And making friends with a, a Buddhist and your Buddhist friend says, man, I want you to come to temple with me. We got this new bhikkhu. Bhikkhu is a temple leader in, in Buddhism. We got this new, he's, he's hilarious. He's an incredible communicator. We've got coffee. We, our Buddhist band rocks. Like, come on, man, you gotta, like, that's not selling me. It's not selling me, I'm not coming. Right? The West is becoming this, by the way, in Christendom. A 2011 study found that 70% of Brits would never attend a Christian service. Funeral, wedding, doesn't matter. I'm not going. America always follows Europe, by the way, and we're not far behind. Which all the more highlights the need to obey the Great Commission. It is good that we invite lost people to come, but we have got to go just for strategic sake, most people won't come. There's nothing unique about Paul's process. In fact, we don't call it Paul's process, it's Christ's process, the Great Commission. All Paul is doing is stewarding the gifts that he's been given and leveraging them for the gospel proclamation. God's call is the same for you and me. You have been given this gospel so that you will go with the gospel. You've been given a job to leverage it in such a way that it's clear that Christ is your king and you share the gospel. You've been given a family, a hobby, money to use it in such a way that people are clear. Those things are not your God, Christ is. 
Those are obvious gifts though. What, what about the not obvious gifts? What about the gift of jail like Paul got, an unjust prison sentence? Now, there's a lot of gifts that, that God gives us that we're like, I wanna give that back. The, name, the, the big one, singleness, right? Like if, if you're like a teenager, college, young professional, you're like, I know that Paul tells me that 1 Corinthians 6, singleness is a gift, but I don't like this gift. I wanna give it back, All right? Sickness, pandemics, second-rate jobs. These are all what Paul saw as gifts. Paul could have, when he got locked up in jail, thrown his hands up and said, I thought you called me to plant churches, Lord. But instead, what does he do? His perspective is that everything in his life is given for a reason and it's a gift that I can leverage for gospel proclamation and mission. So he stewards his imprisonment for the gospel and he sees his chains as a gift to leverage for Jesus. The only way that you can do that, by the way, is the secret of contentment that Paul shares in Philippians 4. Look at Philippians 4, 11 through 13. One of the most uh, misunderstood texts in all of scripture is verse 13. We know it. <clears throat> we tend to see it in sports and athletic fields. But we're gonna look at verses 11 and 13, chapter four, real quick. I'm not saying this because I'm in need. He's talked about some of his circumstances. For I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. The first step to leveraging your gifts for the gospel is being content with those gifts, being content with these circumstances that you've been dealt you say, you don't understand, my situation's different. I'm marginalized in this way. My marriage is miserable. My loneliness is too real. My family is too taxing. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That verse isn't talking about crossing the touchdown line and winning a football game. I can do it, Christ gives me strength. It's not talking about that. It's encouragement for finding contentment no matter what your circumstances are. That your contentment and your peace is no longer dependent upon your position in life, but your position in Christ. I wonder how many teenagers in high school right now see high school as a gift instead of an imprisonment to wait out until I can get freedom and get to college, do whatever I want, or really do God's calling in my life. I wonder how many parents see their kids as a gift to steward for the gospel and not a prison sentence to wait out until nap every day or until I can get the nest back and do what me and my husband really wanna do. I wonder how many senior adults see their retirement as a gift that we can steward for the gospel instead of a freeway into life of leisure before I meet my maker. There is a secret to contentment in all these circumstances and the result of finding contentment is a life centered around Jesus and his mission 
instead of self-servitude and endless satisfaction in this world. There's nothing striking about our family's call to plant. It's incredibly ordinary. We're not doing anything in Atlanta that you can't do right here in Dothan. The playground in our neighborhood is a gift that we can meet families and begin to have gospel conversations with. Nickajack Park's basketball courts and playing basketball is a gift that I can leverage to meet lost players and have gospel conversations with. Our driveway is a gift that we're currently leveraging to start a men's Bible study. It's been going on about a month and a half with several lost men in our neighborhood who said, yeah, I'll come. Our dinner table, eventually, whenever people aren't so skittish and when it's clear and good and right to have people into our home again, that's so political now. Golly, you gotta like be careful how you say things about the pandemic right now. Like when it's clear and like the dinner table is open, we wanna practice hospitality. This is a gift we can leverage for the gospel to have conversations. You could do the, all these things right here in Dothan. We enter the fields to plant seeds of the gospel that God has given us and we wait and we pray for God to give the growth. And the result we pray is a gospel community, a church. Do you notice the diversity of this Philippian church? It's, it's crazy diverse. Like, it's interesting that three of the most marginalized peoples in Israel at the time were the very foundational blocks that the Philippian church was built on. A Gentile jailer, a Jewish woman, and a slave girl. Is it any wonder why Paul, when he writes to the Galatian church in chapter three, verse 28 says, there is neither Gentile nor Jew. There is neither slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. What makes the church unique is that when people look on, what they should be astounded by is what are all those people doing together? What in the world is going on there? That is what makes church attractive, not the bells and whistles. It's people who have no business being in the same community, doing life and loving each other well. That is what is so attractive. Mark Dever, a pastor in DC says this, many relationships that naturally form in our churches would exist even if the gospel weren't true. That's good, right, and helpful. But in addition, we should aspire for many relationships that exist only because of the gospel. The Philippian church was built this way. Atlanta has so much diversity, socioeconomically, racially, sexuality. There's so much diversity in such a way that we have an opportunity to see the gospel spring forth and see unity in a body that the onlooking world says, what in the world is going on? And the only response we could possibly say is Jesus. If anything, the pandemic and current tensions have displayed 
is that this is a really broken, broken world. And we're looking for hope in all the wrong places if it's not Jesus. I mentioned the Bible study that we started in our driveway. Uh, it just men that we met, I met in different avenues. Uh, one needed a project done on Facebook, a woodworking project, and he came over. We hung out for 45 minutes and we met him and his wife. Uh, there's uh, another that we met in our neighborhood at the playground, him and his family, another just hanging out in the driveway, kids playing, and we just met another neighbor. And we just, I said, you know what? I'm gonna try just a Bible study. We can't have people over to our house right now. It's hard to have lunch with people. They're skittish. I wonder if they'll be open to a driveway Bible study where we can do distancing and everything. And we'll just open the word and explain it and have gospel conversations. And so that's what we started doing. And so we're seeing these men come, engage in the word. We're just sharing the gospel. All I can do is that. Thank God it's not dependent upon me to save them. But hopefully and prayerfully, we'll see a church built. We are so grateful that there are churches, namely an anchor church, like First Baptist Dothan, thankful for the missions team and Bob and Taylor and partnering with us so that we can do stuff like that in Atlanta and give our lives to that mission. We could not do that without your financial and your prayer and, and in other ways, teams eventually that whenever things begin to open back up and we have opportunities as we begin to follow God's will, join him in his activity. We'll see opportunities open up to serve at schools, kids ministry opportunities, whenever hopefully we begin to gather as a church body. There's gonna be ways that we're gonna get to see this partnership further in existence. We need your prayers too though. Monday nights at eight o'clock Eastern, that driveway, would love your prayers. We are experiencing obstacles. There are timid people. A lot of Atlanta's closed, but we're excited about what God is doing and what he's gonna continue to do through a partnership like First Baptist Dothan. And so thank you so much for what you mean to us, for my family, for the Lees, and we're excited about the partnership as it continues to grow. Uh, what I wanna do is I wanna, go, I wanna begin to close this and move us in a time of prayer. We're gonna have one more song of, of response. Um, but if you are here this morning and the gospel, the proclamation of just Jesus in my place has stirred something within you in such a way that I need, I need clarity on the gospel. I wanna know what it looks like to be in Christ. And Taylor's gonna be down front. He can answer some of those questions. I wanna be saved. Maybe you're here in First Baptist Dothan. You see the generosity on display. You see this faith family. And you say, I wanna be a part of something like that. You have questions about that, you can come down and ask Taylor. But whatever God's calling you to do, maybe it's missional, something just, I am disobedient to the Great Commission. I need help in learning how. I need to be trained in the gospel so I can go with it. I don't know what that looks like. I need more help. Then come down. We'd love to talk with you about what that might look like. Whatever it is that God's calling you to respond, maybe it's just in song. So as, as, as we respond in song, would you please stand? We're gonna pray and we'll close out. Father God,
God, I pray that the, the brokenness around us, that it would be so clear and evident that we can't not do something about it, that you would have us rub shoulders with the mess, that you would have us encounter lostness in our lives. And if we are bunkered with just Christians around us, God, I pray that you would convict us in such a way that we want to respond by going and being in a community that maybe doesn't look like us, maybe doesn't act like us, but needs the love of Jesus inside of us. So God, give us conviction. God, I pray for First Baptist, I pray that they would be blessed, that your face would continue to shine upon them, that you'd do the same for City View, for all of these ministries present in this room. God, the kingdom of Christ would expand beyond our wildest dreams. And we pray that in your son Jesus' name, amen.